Hello, and welcome to the PCICS podcast. My name is Elizabeth Price, PA at Stanford Children's Hospital, where I care for children in the cardiovascular intensive care unit as an advanced practice provider. This is episode number three of a three-part series on pediatric cardiac ECMO, or VA ECMO. In our first two episodes, we discussed the global indications for ECMO, the process of ECMO cannulation, the ECMO componentry, and the management of a patient on ECMO. In our final episode, we will be discussing complications of ECMO, decannulation, and outcomes data. I'm joined by... Hi, my name is Kate Ryan. I'm Associate Medical Director of the CVICU at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford, and I'm also the Director for ECMO at our hospital. Hi, I'm Ozzy Jahadi, one of the pediatric perfusionists at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford and the ECMO Program Coordinator and Educator. Hi, everyone. This is Alan Shu. I'm an RN ECMO Specialist. I'm also the Ventricular Assist Device Educator and Critical Care Educator for the CVICU. In our previous episodes, we described the case of a three-year-old female with acute myocarditis who was cannulated onto cardiac ECMO, or VA ECMO support, in the setting of cardiogenic shock. The ideal outcome for a patient in this clinical context would be a return of cardiac function after a period of myocardial rest and recovery. While we are optimizing the patient and awaiting cardiac recovery, we are constantly trying to mitigate the significant morbidity and mortality risks associated with this therapy. There are many complications associated with ECMO support, which convey varying degrees of clinical impact. There is a supplement to the podcast where it lists the most common complications, but we will walk through some in more detail now. Bleeding is a very common complication associated with ECMO support. The management of bleeding is related to identifying and treating the underlying cause. Bleeding or oozing from the ECMO cannula site may be related to anticoagulant medications or an indicator that the ECMO cannula is migrating. Thanks, Liz. Um, Patients may also have bleeding and coagulopathy due to sepsis or DIC. Now, when bleeding is severe, it may be necessary to discontinue anticoagulation for a period of time. Neurologic bleeding and GI tract bleeding may present late, so unexplained decreases in hematocrit should trigger an immediate investigation. At our institution, we monitor CBC, PT, PTT, and fibrinogen at regular time intervals throughout the day. Thrombosis is another common complication of ECMO. As we have discussed, clots can form anywhere in the ECMO circuit. Clots that form on the postmembrane side or arterial limb of the circuit can easily dislodge and travel to the patient, compromising the arterial blood flow to the end organs, the most important of which is the brain. The downstream effect of embolized arterial clot could be a debilitating stroke, limb ischemia, or injury to another vital end organ, such as the kidney. All patients on ECMO support should have scheduled routine neurochecks to assess for strokes. New onset seizure or an acute change in neurostatus in an ECMO patient should immediately trigger further evaluation with imaging if possible and consideration of neurology and neurosurgery consultations. That is correct, Alan. And in addition to the clots on the arterial side, clots can develop in the venous portion of the circuit or the oxygenator. While these clots will not be able to reach the patient or cause injury, Clots that accumulate within the oxygenator can ultimately lead to oxygenator failure. At times, concern for uh, accumulation of a clot can necessitate either oxygenator or circuit change. Air embolus is another potential complication associated with ECMO therapy. 
As we discussed, the venous limb of an ECMO circuit is under negative pressure as the pump drains blood. In the event of a disruption in the venous limb or an open access point to the atmosphere in the venous limb, air can easily entrain into the circuit. Microbubbles of air can be captured and vented out by the oxygenator membrane and often won't cause a clinical issue. However, if large amounts of air or continuous microbubbles are introduced into the circuit, the air will pass through the membrane into the arterial side. If not stopped, the air can travel up the arterial limb and reach the patient potentially causing end organ damage or neurologic injury. Another extreme complication is cannula dislodgement. Although the ECMO cannula are sutured in place, they can migrate secondary to patient movement and the mobilization associated with rehabilitation. Now, if the ECMO cannula becomes dislodged, the patient can experience hemorrhagic shock, air entrainment into the circuit, or other hemodynamic compromise. As part of routine patient monitoring, the position of ECMO cannula should be documented and verified to be stable on routine radiographs in addition to physically monitoring the cannulation site and cannula measurements. Ambulation or significant patient movement while on ECMO support should be done in accordance with institution-specific protocols as well as close monitoring with routine echo as needed. Tubing rupture in the roller head pump is a complication observed less frequently. The pump is continuously compressing a portion of the tubing in the raceway, causing repetitive strain on the plastic and over time compromising integrity of the pump tubing. The phrase walk the raceway describes moving of the portion of the ECMO tubing relative to the roller head pump as prescribed intervals to decrease the wear and tear on the same portion of the tubing. Another complication that we sometimes see with ECMO support is limb ischemia. Now, this can be a result of the ECMO cannula position compromising blood flow, as in the case sometimes of femoral cannulation. It can also occur secondary to compartment syndrome. Again, it's often seen uh, more commonly with a femoral cannulation. It can also be the result of emboli to distal extremities. Further, end organs such as the kidney or liver can be subject to emboli and suffer damage, and they can frequently be noted to be compromised in the course of an ECMO run. Finally, infection is a complication associated with ECMO support. While on ECMO support, there is an ongoing risk of infection related to the indwelling cannula, the monitoring lines and catheters routinely used in the ICU, and the ventilator, if present. It's important to remember Fever is often masked for ECMO patients as the patient's temperature is regulated by the ECMO circuit. I'd like to spend a few minutes discussing circuit emergencies, and this describes any instance where the patient must be emergently separated from ECMO due to an acute complication such as air entrainment or circuit failure. Now, to elaborate a little bit, a circuit failure can occur due to complete thrombosis of the membrane oxygenator, thrombosis of the patient's cannulas, failure of the actual pump itself, or a rupture of the plastic tubing carrying the ECMO circuit. Now, there should always be a contingency plan in place in the event of an emergency disconnection of the patient from the ECMO circuit. So emergency ventilator settings need to be posted at the bedside, and the patient care team should have a shared mental model of the plan for hemodynamic support while a replacement circuit is being prepared.
The clinical consequence for the patient is that the heart is acutely required to generate a cardiac output, and the lungs are acutely required to perform the work of oxygenation and ventilation, and both of that is without any kind of preparation. Now, in some cases, the patient may be able to generate some degree of cardiac output that can be augmented with significant inotropy and full ventilator support. But in other cases, the patient won't generate a meaningful cardiac output, and CPR must be initiated immediately. So let's run through a couple of examples of a circuit emergency with Ozzy, our ECMO coordinator. So Oz, say we have a patient who's on VA ECMO support, and a large volume of air is entrained into the ECMO circuit through the venous limb. It's crossed the membrane oxygenator onto the arterial side of the circuit, and it's headed toward the patient. How do you respond immediately? Well, Kate, the first and most important step is to stop forward flow and prevent L embolus to the patient. The patient should be placed on emergency vent setting and resuscitated by the medical team. The ECMO specialist should then be identifying the source of the air and proceed to remove the air per center's guideline or plan for a circuit change. The patient should be placed back on ECMO as quickly and safely to re-establish the ECMO support. Clear roles, clear steps for air removal, and clear communication between teams are essential. That's great, Oz. And in part, to establish those roles and steps for air removal, a training pathway that reviews in air emergency is key, whether it involves simulation, water drills, or whatever uh, center's guidelines may be. All right, our second scenario, you have a patient, Ozzy, that you're transporting to the cath lab, and there's a sudden drop in the patient's blood pressure that's followed by a drop in your saturations. How do you evaluate the circuit and the patient at this point? Well, uh, in this scenario, I would check to see if there's forward flow to the patient. I would consider if the pump has a stop due to power loss or no battery backup. If we had power failure, I would start hand cranking and work toward replacing the console or the parts that is not working and malfunctioning. A far more common occurrence than the circuit emergency is an elective circuit change under controlled conditions. When cardiac recovery is prolonged and the patient spends several days or even weeks on ECMO support, the circuit components and tubing can accumulate clots, which will cause the circuit to fail or result in clot embolization to the patient. When circuit viability is in question or a clot is in a concerning location with a high risk of embolization to the patient, we will electively change the circuit. And as you mentioned, Alan, this is an elective circuit change, which means that we have time to prepare for it. As part of that preparation, the team should always be ready to resuscitate the patient while they're off ECMO support. So this may include increasing vasoactive infusions uh, as well as escalation of ventilatory support. Deep sedation, neuromuscular blockade may be necessary to decrease their metabolic needs and to completely control their ventilation. At our institution, we maintain pre-drawn boluses of epinephrine at the bedside to utilize in the course of a circuit change, though typically circuit changes are fast enough that we are able to avoid giving them, and we strongly try to do so. Moving back to the patient, ideally after a period of myocardial rest and recovery, she would be able to decannulate from ECMO, which by design is either a bridge to recovery or a bridge to a more durable form of support. Kate, can you discuss how we assess readiness for decannulation? 
I'm happy to, Liz. Now, there are no strict criteria to determine readiness to separate from ECMO, but typically we consider the following. One, has the cause of acute cardiac failure resolved and has the cardiac function recovered? Two, are the hemodynamics optimized? Specifically, is the patient euvolemic with resolved lactic acidosis and appropriate end organ function? Typically, one would expect normal gas exchange, normal lactate, and adequate blood pressure and a normal saturation on minimal vasopressor support. Three, are there any additional clinical limitations that, if we address them, would increase the potential for successful decannulation? So, for example, should ascites be drained or a therapeutic bronchoscopy be performed for airway clearance before separating from ECMO support? Now, the broad objective of the weaning trial is to decrease the ECMO circuit flow slowly to a nominal level of support while monitoring the capacity of the heart and the lungs to resume their respective functions. In some cases, the circuit will be clamped, which will temporarily separate the patient from cardiopulmonary support. And during this time, the medical team is closely observing hemodynamics, gas exchange, saturation, lactate, and end organ function. In other cases, patients may be able to be observed on low flows of ECMO support and decannulate from the air without needing to undergo a full clamp trial. In the case of our three-year-old patient with acute viral myocarditis, she's now on day five of ECMO support. The cardiac ECMO circuit is flowing at 100 mLs per kilo per minute. She is warm and well-perfused with pulsatility evident on the arterial line with a mean arterial pressure of 60. Inotropes are in line in the event of emergency but not being infused. Her CVP is eight and her arterial blood gas demonstrates normal pH PCO2, PaO2, and a low lactate of 0.5. Her chest x-ray is clear and her lung compliance on the ventilator is good. Laboratory studies demonstrate normal kidney and normal liver function. So if we circle back to our criteria for decannulation, is this patient ready? From all you've described, Liz, it seems like this patient is ready to decannulate. As you referenced, her cardiac function has returned, even if she needs some degree of inotropic support that would not be unheard of and is completely reasonable to start an infusion. Her lung compliance is reasonable, suggesting that her lungs are ready to do the work of oxygenation and ventilation. Her end organ function is intact with her own ability to provide our cardiac output. And it seems like it's in the best interest of the patient, given all of these parameters, as well as the fact that she's euvolemic and that there are no other interventions that would be needed to do to optimize her, that she is ready for decannulation. If at any point during the ECMO weaning trial, the patient demonstrates evidence of uncompensated respiratory or hemodynamic deterioration with inadequate cardiac output, the ECMO flow can be increased and the cardiac output restored. Returning to our myocarditis case, What can we expect for her duration of ECMO support and survival to hospital discharge? According to registry data, the mean duration of ECMO support for pediatric patients requiring cardiac ECMO is seven days. Although serious complications can occur at any time during the ECMO course, patients who require a longer duration of ECMO support typically accumulate more complications and are less likely to survive. Also, neonates or patients who require cardiac ECMO for the indication of congenital heart disease are less likely to survive to hospital discharge. And any patient who requires eCPR, which is ECMO cannulation in the course of a cardiac arrest, has a predicted survival of less than 50%. 
Now for our three-year-old patient with acute viral myocarditis, her chance of survival to discharge is about 51% according to registry data, and that is without VAD support. To round out this case, our patient was successfully decannulated on reasonable doses of inotropic infusions. She extubated several days later, was transitioned to oral heart failure medication regimen, and was transferred to the floor. She was eventually discharged, and subsequent follow-up visits have demonstrated stable, mild systolic dysfunction. This concludes episode number three of Pediatric Cardiac ECMO, or VA ECMO. To learn more about Pediatric Cardiac ECMO, visit the ELSO website at elso.org or the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society website at pcics.org. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more.